Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest Smart Leverage podcast, this one being for October and November 2022. And although it's a couple of months since I made the last one, it actually only feels like a month, which just goes to prove that, well, when you're having fun, time does go fast. It's really nice now that COVID is a bit more under control to see lots of live magic events taking place. Um, both big and small, everybody seems to be getting back into the swing of things, which is fantastic. And a friend of mine, he went to a very high profile event recently. And when he got back, I said to him, so how, how was it then? And he expressed disappointment. He pointed out there were a couple of things or people, actually, who he thought were excellent. But generally speaking, he came away feeling a little bit sad that the thing hadn't lived up to his expectations. And it led me to think about this because as somebody who's organised events myself for many years on many occasions, I know how difficult it can be to anticipate what everybody involved is going to want out of the event. Because depending on who it is, that person or people are going to want probably different things in order to make it for them a success. So the dealers who attend, for instance, any event, well, they're looking to sell product, aren't they? So if they don't get enough time or they perceive that they haven't had enough free time for people to come and browse and to talk to, to the dealers and to, to buy stuff, and so sales are poor, and the dealers are standing around talking to each other because there's nobody else in the room, this can make the best convention in the world generally as generally uh, sort of seen to be, for the dealers, a terrible convention. Because from their perspective, it probably was. So that's one sort of set of people. Then you've got the registrants themselves. Well, I mean, people go to conventions for all sorts of different reasons, don't they? Some go because they want to see the, lots of great magicians perform and lecture. And if the, those particular performers or lecturers don't quite live up to expectations, then for them, even though other aspects of the convention may have been fantastic, for them, it wasn't very good. And then you've got other registrants who are desperate to go because they know they're going to see friends there, people they haven't seen perhaps, and certainly in more recent times, haven't seen perhaps two or three years even and they always meet them at the convention. If those people don't turn up, or for some reason aren't able to go, then for them, when they turn up themselves at the convention, they are disappointed because the event didn't have the, the companionship, if you like, of meeting up with friends that they'd hoped that it would. And then there are other registrants who actually, they're not really, yes, they, they, they go to be at the convention, but they're more interested in sitting in the bar or sessioning with others. And if there aren't sufficient breakout rooms or not enough time to fraternise around the events, then they may think that that's no good either. And then, of course, the organisers themselves, well, they have a completely different way of looking at everything. Because to, for them, how the performers and lecturers deliver what the, they promised they might is critical. You can book some of the best names in the world, but if on the day they don't really come up to scratch, it's kind of not your fault as the organiser and you're, you're the one who's been responsible for booking them. You know, you may have seen them in the past or know of them from reputation and you think, well, this person would be absolutely brilliant for my convention. So you book them and they turn up and they really, really disappoint. It's kind of not your fault in a way, but on the other hand, you did book them. 
then of course you might have other things like technical glitches especially with when there's these days conventions are increasingly there's a lot more technology goes on with its lighting sound music even streaming events simultaneously online and so on and so forth so there are a lot of technical things that can go wrong and also scupper it so the conventioneers sometimes may not even be aware of the difficulties that are going on behind the scenes but of course the organizers do and at the end they may say oh my goodness that event was a nightmare so there are all sorts of reasons why you might be either happy or not happy with the convention just depending on kind of which camp you come from but the fact of the matter is it is actually great to have live conventions back because love them or hate them when we go to them we still want to go to them don't we okay now is it just me or are there other people like me who get a bit irritated sometimes when certain performers spend a lot of time telling anybody who will listen via publicity via online feeds or just face to face how they performed recently for some famous person or other it's as if these people think that because they've entertained I don't know a rock famous rock musician or a movie star or a politician or something like that this kind of makes them a more elite magician as if they must be doing something very special if they get bookings like that whereas in fact surely isn't the isn't it just the case that either they've got a very good agent or they got lucky and just happened to get an inquiry and uh, there were famous people at it i mean let's face it more often than not when somebody says oh i entertained i don't know mick jagger or something it's not that mick jagger actually booked that magician nine times out of ten it's that mick jagger was probably at a, a charity do in which there were magicians and one of the magicians happened to entertain at mick jagger's table or anybody else is famous for that matter and therefore can say quite rightly i've entertained mick jagger but the inference is that that person was booked by Mick Jagger, whereas in fact he may not have been. And I don't know why this, this riles me slightly. It's when people put quotes all the time of what famous people have said about their magic. The greatest magician I've ever seen, and then the name of some famous person is supposed to have said this. As if the fact that somebody's famous has said that this magician is brilliant gives it more credibility somehow than Mrs. Bloggs from down the road who booked you for a kid's party and who was absolutely thrilled with what you did. Because I personally don't think it does make more di make any difference or make more of a difference. It doesn't make you a better magician and the comments are no more valid than Mrs. Bloggs. It's just another comment. It's just that the famous people are known by lots of people. And so again, the inference is, well, if this magician is working for I don't know, royalty or something or, or famous people, they must be great. Look what these people said. And we all know that sound bites, that's what famous people are very good at quite often. You know, politicians, well, they're all about sound bites these days, aren't they? Uh, and so just to say, oh, that was extremely good when they see a magic trick, which they weren't actually really that interested in, but they felt they had to say something polite. Magician takes that, puts it on his website, so-and-so politician said brilliant magician or whatever and I don't know I just I've always felt that to be slightly disingenuous because it, it's giving an impression that you as a magician are better than perhaps you really are of course 
there is the danger that uh, if you sort of blow yourself up like that and have lots of quotes from famous people apparently saying great things about your show, then uh, you need then, when you're booked by somebody else, to live up to all of that hype, don't you? And sometimes living up to hype is something that most of us can't do. Disappointed expectations. Bookers see all these quotes from famous people think, oh, this guy is the bee's knees. He, we've got to have him. You know, he's a lot of money, but we've got to have him. He's obviously great. If you then can't produce the goods, then the person is doubly disappointed because their expectations were raised by the hyperbole of all the, the quotes and the famous people saying nice things. And so it can actually work against you, I think. Of course, if you're a top magician, if you genuinely do get booked by directly, either via an agent or directly for famous people, all well and good. But I'm sure that the majority of people aren't and they have an eye for a chance and just use the quotes in the hope that people will think that they are a better magician than they might otherwise really have thought they were. For many amateur or hobbyist magicians, I suppose the living the dream would be to be able to do magic on a full-time professional basis. And there are those who have given up the day job, as it were, and taken the plunge and become full-time professionals. And it's not an easy jump to make, of course, especially when you've been used perhaps for many years to having a regular income and a regular salary to suddenly be thrown into a situation where you've often no idea where the next pound's coming from can be a bit scary and it can take a while to adjust. But um, although that's, that type of jump happens occasionally from amateur to full-time pro, there's another interim stage, which I, I suspect a lot more people do. That's where they become a semi-pro. So they keep the day job, but of course, because they want to earn some extra money, they decide to do magic shows as well. And this transition, although not as drastic as going full-time pro, does nevertheless have some implications which maybe people need to think about in advance. I suppose the first thing is, is that if you're going to start working for money when you haven't been working for money before, even though you're a semi-pro, when you actually do the show, as far as the booker is concerned, you are a professional magician. In other words, you are being paid to entertain. And with that comes an expectation. And the fact that you have a, a day job as well, and a regular income, is of no interest to them. All they think is that, well, this guy has charged me X amount of money and he's coming to do a show. So therefore, they, the implication is, yes, he is a pro. So you have to make sure that your show itself and the way that you present that show and the way that you deal with the booker, I think you have to make sure that that is done at a professional level. It's no good being vague about it. It's no good thinking, well, it doesn't really matter because it's not my real job because you're not going to get many shows with that attitude. So you have to be serious about putting across a professional face and a professional show when you're being paid to do it. So that's one thing then, just making sure that the magic itself is up to scratch. The other thing is time. Now, when you have a full-time job, it's tiring isn't it? Let's face it, you know, you could, some weeks are busier than others, obviously, depending on what the job is. 
but nonetheless you get tired. So if you're working all day and then you're going out in the evening to do a three-hour close-up gig, after a while that can uh, take a toll on your energy levels, depending on how old you are. If you're young, maybe it doesn't. When you're older, it can. It can you can feel absolutely exhausted. And the problem is that, once again, you're being paid to deliver. And the fact that you've been working at your day job all day is of no interest, again, to the booker. You are supposed to be able to deliver. And if you're too tired to do a good job, if you're too tired to do the magic to a technically good level, and that, or you just don't entertain very vibrantly because you're just basically knackered, then again, you're letting yourself down, aren't you? And in some ways, time where you're not giving yourself enough recovery time between your normal job and the magic, I think that's one of the pitfalls that semi-pro magicians can fall into, is that they don't, that they see, especially if they start to get busy with the magic, not busy enough to go full-time pro, but actually a bit too busy to, to sort of comfortably cope with the demands of shows and full-time job. And I think it takes some thinking about it. I mean, commi commitments to the show means that you're in your spare time, you're no longer at home with your family or with your friends or with your social activities. So there's a price to be paid for that too. Are you prepared to, to ditch your family and friends in order to be a semi-pro magician? Is that what you want? Now, you can get around these things by putting your prices up so you don't get so many shows or just being very selective about which shows you do or when you do them. But I think the temptation is you get on a bit of a roll, don't you? It becomes a bit of a drug. You get an inquiry. Every time you get an inquiry which you respond to, you kind of you want to get the show, don't you? You don't want to not get it. So in that sense, you, you're always trying to get more and more and more. But sometimes I think it, it really does pay us all to look at, well, time is a precious commodity. Do I want to spend all my time as a semi-pro when I should be perhaps relaxing, socialising and doing other things, out entertaining? If the answer is yes, all well and good. But you still, there's the energy levels thing, it still, I think, kicks in. So if you're one of these people who's either just gone semi-pro or you're thinking of going semi-pro, do, do think about the implications of this and make a decision with yourself how much you're going to do to make sure that not only do you not wear yourself out, but you also do a good job when you go out to perform. I don't know if you know the name Paul Anthony, but um, Paul has one of the biggest jobs in magic. And by this I mean that way back in, I think it was 1996, he bought all the remaining stock of Supreme Magic and he put it, I believe, in a vast warehouse. And his idea was to gradually go through all the stuff and make it available again and basically sell it off. Um, not necessarily to produce more quantities of it because there was just so much there anyway. But he wanted to, to go through it all and catalogue it and then get it out there again. And the trouble was that Paul had his own business anyway, and he was really busy. And he kept on promising himself, I'm sure, that he would get on and do this. But the task was so huge. There were so many. There were thousands and thousands of items. 
and it was just so massive that I can imagine him standing at the door of the warehouse and looking at all these endless packages and thinking, oh, crikey, do I start? And he had a couple of attempts to, to sort of start it. But it, it would appear that at last he's getting his act together. And after 26 years of waiting, um, he has a website, magicsupreme.co.uk. And he is drip feeding onto the site as he's as he sorts it out um, all of the uh, the supreme magic products that he purchased all those years ago. Now a lot of these things are in limited quantities, of course, uh, and it's not just supreme magic. It's not. I mean, you think of supreme magic, you tend to think of the kids' stuff. Well, I should imagine some of that's gone. Some of that card stuff is sort of so old it's gone gone a funny colour and curled up at the edges, but. Bit like an old sandwich but he had a lot of other stuff too edwin when and supreme magic did uh things like morrissey stuff so lots of chuck cups and cups and balls and that sort of thing and all of these things are gradually being put onto the onto the site and i was, I was looking at it the other, just out of interest the other day and it was fascinating to see some of the wooden and brass props which i'm sure people are still using um, but haven't possibly been able to get replacements for. And I would imagine that there are a lot of magicians out there saying, oh, great, you know, I, my uh, my particular silk caddy or something needs replacing or whatever it might be. Well, now, as Paul gradually brings all these things on, you'll be able to get these things for a limited time. He also, I believe, has um, a, 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 all the, the whole range of Supreme books as well. And some of those are sort of classic, really. Um, some of them were reprints of original Harry Stanley ones and others were ones that, uh, that Supreme did themselves. But a vast range and a huge catalogue of, of books, which again, he'll gradually be bringing through. I think also it, the, the stuff that he's producing is not only replacements and, and possibly we'll, finding, we'll be finding a new, a, a new audience, if you like, because some of these props are no longer available anywhere else. And haven't been seen for many years so there are new magicians coming in who might well enjoy using them and who haven't seen them before but also of course i would imagine that magical historians will be interested in some of the rarer items there you know collectors are always looking out for older stuff and the, some of these things will be in absolutely mint condition because they've been wrapped up in a and stuck in a warehouse all this time and so i i'm, I'm hoping for paul's sake that he will be able to maintain this uh, and and bring the vast majority of this stuff to the marketplace because it would be such a shame that all these products which were of their time you know for 20 or 30 years supreme were the worldwide leading de dealers and uh, and and produced enormous quantities of magic of all different sorts close up lots of children's stuff of course stage things flowers all sorts and they were the go-to magic dealer for many, many people. So to see all that stuff back out again, even if only for sentimental reasons, is actually quite nice. So go on, Paul. Keep it going. I hope you don't fall over with tiredness before you can get it all done. Right, let's talk about magic clubs for a few minutes, shall we? Now, I must admit, I'm not a, I'm not a great devotee of magic clubs. I've been mem a member of magic clubs on and off for many years. I'm not currently attending any, anywhere in particular because, to be honest with you, when you spend all day, every day, 
doing something to do with magic, probably the last thing you want to do in your spare time is go to a magic meeting. But nevertheless, I think magic clubs are fabulous in that they give a place for anybody who's interested in magic to get together with others of similar interest and to exchange views and watch lectures and just socialise and just have a bit of fun with the, with the hobby or in some cases with the job. However, um, there is something about magic clubs that I've noticed that um, I don't know whether you've noticed it as well, that there, there's a sort of pecking order. It's an unwritten one, but it's a sort of pecking order that goes in, on amongst the members. Now, when I say pecking order, I don't mean people who are in positions of like officers of the society, like the president, secretary, treasurer. I don't mean that that type of hierarchical arrangement. I'm talking about the pecking order of where people see other magicians in the general run of the standard or the type of magicians in the club. You know, I'm sure in your club there are people who you respect, who you have a lot of time for, who you even admire perhaps because they've achieved a lot, they're good magicians, they just do things in your opinion in the right way and to the right standard. And then there will be others who, you know, you don't think much of, quite frankly, do you? You think, well, he's a rubbish magician. He's a nice enough chap, but, he, you know, he couldn't entertain to save his life. And so you start in your own mind, I think, to create this pecking order where you put some people on a, on a ridiculous high pedestal where they probably don't deserve to be, but in your eyes they do. And others you demote sort of way down the scale somewhere. And I wonder whether this reflects why you end up with to a certain extent, with cliques of, of members in clubs. This sometimes happens. You get a, a hardcore group who have a, perhaps a particular interest, but who feel that they don't wish to associate particularly with the hoi polloi, with the rest of the general membership. They just want to keep to their own little group. And this can be, depending on how it manifests itself and how many there are, this can be quite divisive. Um, because they can undermine the general ethos of everybody joining in, everybody having a go. But um, even if that's not the case, um, there are, I don't know whether you've ever thought about this before, but there are occasions where you feel aggrieved, perhaps, that another member of the society is given plaudits. But in your pecking order, he's way down the bottom, not up the top, and yet everybody's saying how wonderful he is. And you think, really? So this pecking order, it's, it's, it's an unofficial thing and it's, it's not real. But within that club, I think it's a reality. And I think everybody knows, probably, unless they've only just joined, they know kind of where they are in that pecking order, where they feel they are. Well, I'm in the middle somewhere or, well, actually, I'm one of the top ones or, well, I'm very inexperienced. I, you know, I'm probably one of the lesser known people here. I'll, I'll shut up and just sit quietly at the back. But you just get this feeling. And then gradually, as years go up, as go by, you may revise where you feel you are in that pecking order, depending on what happens. So that's in your local club. What then happens is, so let's say you feel you're one of the big wigs in your local society. You then go to a major magic event. Let's say you go to FISM or something like that. And you suddenly realise that at FISM, some of the greatest magicians in the world are now all in the same building. And your idea of where you are in the pecking order suddenly has to be completely rejigged, doesn't it? 
I mean, you, unless you're very arrogant or you just you genuinely are world class, you, you can't believe that you are going to be up the top alongside some of the world's greatest and most experienced entertainers. You, you just you're just not going to be. So suddenly your position in the pecking order has changed. Now, this doesn't actually matter unless you're going in for a competition. And FISM, of course, is all about competitions. You can win your local club competition year after year and feel that, well, I am the bee's knees. I have, I've got this magic competition thing cracked. I'm going to have a go at something else. And then you go into a big competition, not necessarily FISM, but some of the other ones, whether it's at Blackpool or other places, where the standard is much higher and it can be a heck of a reality check as you realize that in the pecking order you're not as important as you thought you're not as good as you thought that you were compared to some of the very best people and so suddenly you have to revise how you feel about where you are i think it's a really interesting subject and i would i'd love to know talk to some other people about this and, and see whether they think their club has a pecking order and if so where they think they are in it now, there are some people who are relentlessly ambitious and no matter what field they happen to be in, they will always try to excel in that field. So whether they're a racing driver, a tennis player, a footballer or a magician, they want to be the absolute best and they will do anything that it takes to achieve their goal. And in terms of magic, I suppose most of us still perhaps, although it's a bit of a surprise in some ways, still think that the, the height of fame is to appear on television. Something I never quite understand about that because 20 or 30 years ago when there were relatively few television channels, if a magician made it onto the big screen, or the little screen I should say, if he made it onto the television, that was quite a big deal because with all the magicians there were, there were so few programmes, so few opportunities for magicians to actually be on telly, that if you made it, that was really quite something. These days, of course, uh, with so much of it being almost reality TV anyway, there's so many channels looking for content that it's much, much easier. And of course, with YouTube and the web generally, you can put your own stuff up there. So being on on sort of video on a screen, whether it's television or whether it's on a computer, is actually not really a big deal. But nevertheless, I suppose mainstream television is where a lot of people would say, if you can get to be a regular on television, then you've absolutely made it. You've become a household name. I think the trouble is, though, you have to, you have to be slightly careful what you wish for, don't you? Because I remember the story that Darren Brown tells about when he got his first sort of big break on television. And at that point, he was he was a, you know, he'd been a jobbing close up magician. He was a, a mentalist and he got his suddenly gets an opportunity unexpectedly, as he admits, to do a TV show. And his agent said, well, you know, you used to charge 300 pounds to, to go out and do a show. Now you're going to be charging 3000 pounds or whatever it was that there was an exponential jump in the fee that he could ask simply because he'd been on television. The trouble was he hadn't been on television very much and half the people who were inquiring of him didn't know he'd been on television even if he told them they didn't see it. And so he wasn't getting the bookings because he, 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 he was perceived as being way too expensive. And so 
it wasn't until he got onto television consistently and became well known, of course, then you can justify the fee. But there's this interim period when you're not famous enough to, to really uh, get away with, if that's the right word, or to charge and get paid the really high fees that a famous person gets paid. And you don't get the cheaper shows because people either assume that you're going to be expensive or you can't charge one minute £5,000 the next minute £450 for a show. It, you just can't do that. You're either in the £450 a show slot or you're in the five grand a show slot. But jumping from one to the other just doesn't make any sense. So I think it's really difficult when you're, when you're trying to get very successful this, this interim period and I, I'm sure that there must be some people who have sort of shot for the stars reached them temporarily and then have to drop back again and, and had to re-look at and re-evaluate what they are actually worth or more accurately what bookers think that they are worth and that the bookers are prepared to pay them. When a strolling or table hopping magician is putting together a collection of magic to take out to work at a gig. The first impression, especially for a newcomer to the uh, to the particular genre of magic, the, the impression that that person would get initially is that there are just so many tricks to choose from. You think how many close-up tricks there are. There are just thousands and thousands of potential tricks that a person could choose. And it can be very hard sometimes, I'm sure, for beginners to think, where on earth do I start? What would be a good trick to start with? But the fact of the matter is, what you have to consider before you actually look at the tricks themselves is what is going to be practical for you to actually use in the circumstances and in the venues at which you're going to be having to present, to present the magic in the first place. So if you're a strolling magician and you're working mix and mingle events, then the first and most obvious thing is that you're probably not going to have a table to work on. You probably may not even have anywhere to put anything down temporarily because spectators themselves, if it's a reception type event, may well be holding a drink in one hand and either a bag or a piece of food in the other. You can't even hand something to somebody because the, the, they haven't got any hands. They have to put the drink down on the floor. So any trick that requires spreading something out on a table, like ribbon spreading cards, or would require in any way a close-up mat, or would require people to, to hold things for any period of time, may not be possible to be used. So you have to discount all tricks like that. And then, of course, the nature of strolling magic or table hopping magic is that you, you, you can't really keep stopping to reset tricks, can you? So if you can't reset a trick, then you can only use tricks which either don't have a reset of any sort or which you will can either reset in front of people, just a question of putting things away, essentially, or which automatically, in the course of doing the trick, reset themselves. And there aren't an awful lot of tricks that do that. So all the tricks that don't reset themselves or can't be reset in front of people, you better get rid of those. And then you have to think to yourself, right, I need to be able to carry whatever tricks I'm going to be doing on my person, really. Uh, I can't take a, 
a little trolley around or a case, you know, I, I, I have to carry it all. So any trick that has lots of items in it or large bulky props, you're probably going to have to discount those because you, you won't be able to carry them. There's, there's, it's just not practical. And if you fill your pockets too full with stuff, not only does it make your jacket look ridiculous, but also you can't get at things easily. So you better discount all tricks that use big props. That get rid, gets rid of another load of stuff. And then you need tricks which um, the, where they're not too uh, long, or if they are going to be long, that they are they are made up of several short, what we would call a routine. Lay people see as four different tricks. We would see them as a routine where four tricks are blended together into one routine. So that if you're at a table and a meal comes, that you can stop quickly. Because if you have a very long trick with a lead in time of say five minutes to one magical moment at the end, and just as you're getting to after all that preamble and build up, you're just about to get to the actual magic and a meal comes, everybody looks around, oh, is that my meal? And they're no longer interested in the magic. Well, you don't want tricks like that, really, do you? So you better get rid of all of those. All tricks that don't aren't either short or that don't aren't made up of small sections, you better get rid of them. And then you don't really want to have to carry consumables, do you? You know, if you were doing a cut and restored rope, you don't want to have to carry loads and loads and loads of extra rope, which you gradually feed in, do you? And if you're doing a tournament or, I don't know, cigarette paper or something, you, you, you don't want to have to carry any extras. A little ball's already screwed up somewhere and that you need to find before you can do the trick. So any trick that has a consumable where during the course of the trick something is got rid of might be best not to do, use any tricks like that. And then you might think, well, what about... Uh, sort of the lighting conditions and the working conditions generally. You know, it's, it's our tricks with a thread. I mean, we magicians love tricks with thread, but are they actually practical in a, in a commercial set, setting a lot of the time? You know, the rough and tumble of a, of a dinner where people are walking around, bumping into people because they're drunk or whatever. I, perhaps not. So maybe don't do any tricks with delicate gimmicks uh, particularly threads and things, get rid of all of those because there's, there's no point in taking the risk with them. And then tricks where there's a lot of chat required for the effect to actually take place. I don't just mean patter, I mean process where you've got to describe to a spectator. A lot of mental effects can be like this, can't they? Where they, you know, you, you, you have to put across to a spectator very specific instructions for the trick to work. And if you don't, if they don't understand it, or they don't get it right, the whole trick fails. Now, of course, in strolling conditions, often there is background music, which is a bit loud, so people can't hear you. So any trick really that involves a lot of talk that's necessary for the process of the trick, you better get rid of those, because I don't think you should do those, just in case they can't hear you. Um, and if a trick is not very visual, you might want to consider for table hopping, leaving those out too, because a table, a round table of say 10 or 12 people is quite large, can be quite large. And people on the far side of the table, if you're doing tiny magic with tiny objects, even coins, small coins, they're not going to be able to see them. So if you want to be able to project to a whole table of diners, you need magic that's a bit more visible, a bit more visual. So anything that's tiny, you better get rid of that, unless you're working in a restaurant, you better get rid of that. 
So you can see, can't you, that by the time you've taken all these things, and I've only named a few of the things, there are others, by the time you've taken all those things into consideration and you've ditched all the tricks that don't comply with your new found set of rules, you can see why magicians end up with a relatively small repertoire of potential tricks that they can choose from and why so many magicians are accused of all doing the same tricks. It's not just that we all like the same tricks, it's just that under the demanding circumstances that close-up magicians commercially have to work under, so many tricks just don't cut it. You cannot take them, no matter how good a trick it is, and no matter how much you want to do it, the circumstances that you're expected to perform in, the venues that you have to go to, are just not commensurate with these types of tricks. And so the classic tricks, the tricks which have stood the test of time, whether it's the card to wallet, whether it's equal and equal ropes, the sponge balls, this is why we're all doing them. It's because they have been proved over many years to be tricks that can be done almost under any circumstances. And let's face it, if you're getting paid to go out and do a show, why would you want to take risks with stuff that just may not work under the circumstances? As most of you who are listening to this probably know, I spend a lot of my time producing content for my online club, eClub Pro. And as it's coming to the, to the end of its 12th year, the amount of material that's now on the members-only pages of my website is absolutely huge. There are over a thousand pages of content. So it's full of advice and magic and ideas and tips and, and, and so on. There's just so much stuff there. And I think it's, it's one of the, the best value clubs that, that, that there is around. Um, if you wanted to join, um, you can obviously take out two uh, sort of membership that's either just the standard membership, which is eClub Pro, which is £12 a month, or you can take on the, the elite level of membership, which is £20 a month, which gets you loads of extra benefits, particularly um, accented towards um, marketing and things like that, where I delve a lot deeper into a lot of topics. But even if you only want to not join at this point, but you'd like to find out a bit more about eClub Pro and the type of magic that's in it, then take a look at the eClub Pro Select section of my shop, online shop, because there I sell for a limited time um, a small range of, of, the, of the routines that are available to eClub Pro members. They're uh, very reasonably priced at just £7 each. They're all downloads, of course, like all my stuff is. And it will give you a, a very clear indication of the type of magic that as a member you could have had for your membership fee. Um, there's lots of different types of, of magic there. And what I do is I, at any one time I have a selection of 10 eClub Pro Select products. And then every couple of months I remove two of them and I add two more. So every couple of months there's always a change round of, of new products to see and a couple of others will disappear. So if you want to get some sort of an idea, go and buy a couple of those and see what they're like. And then it may encourage you to think, well, actually, you know, I might as well become a member because then I'll get hundreds of things like this to choose from for my membership fee. So think about that then. That's eClub Pro and eClub Pro Select. 
The final topic that I want to chat about in this podcast is, it's a bit of a hoary chestnut one really, this. It's about whether card magic is boring. Because there is, and I don't know why, but there is, and often you hear this said, there is a feeling amongst magicians, some magicians anyway, that lay people think that card magic is boring and, uh, and that therefore you shouldn't do card magic for them. And I, I admit I'm one of them. Uh, I don't do a lot of card tricks for lay people. But the fact of the matter is, it's not that card tricks are necessarily boring. It's the people who present the card tricks that might be boring rather than the trick itself. OK, that's not entirely true. There are some tricks, counting tricks, dealing tricks, which, which are, by their very nature, a bit mundane. But even those, you get the right... Danny De Ortis can make anything funny, entertaining... And, and, and something that you really want to watch. And yet lots of his magic is dealing stuff out. And it's not just for magicians. Anybody would just find him hysterical because he, he seems to be so random, everything's so wild and all sort of all over the place. So it shows that it the trick itself, if you were to take Danny de Ortiz out of the trick and just do very sort of, in a very plain, ordinary way what he does, it would be boring. So it's not, but it's not the trick that's boring, it's the way it's presented. And that is the thing that decides whether it's going to be boring or not. And there are quite a few magicians, of course, who do nothing but card tricks. Now, I can understand how you can get away with that with magicians, because I think magicians love card tricks. As a general rule, a lot of magicians, nothing they like better than to sit for three hours with somebody and watch card tricks for three hours. It's, it's not for me personally, but that's what a lot of people like to do. But to say that all card tricks are boring for lay people isn't true. And although I'm one of these people, as I say, who, who tends to err on the side of caution when it comes to card tricks, I actually came a cropper with that once because I made the assumption I, was do I did a dinner in a local hotel and it was 95% women. And I decided, well, as it's women, I'm, I'm going to do virtually no card tricks. And at one particular table and this was the table that the lady who'd actually booked me was sitting on, I did four tricks and none of them were card tricks. And afterwards I had an exchange of emails with the lady and she expressed her disappointment that I hadn't done any card magic at her table because she really liked card tricks and was really felt let down. And I thought, go figure, honestly, a room full of women and I managed to pick a table, don't do any, happen to do any card tricks on that table, and there's a woman there who desperately wanted to see card tricks. So there are those people who actually really enjoy a card trick. And I think for some lay people, because they know one or two card tricks themselves, they kind of like to see other card tricks, to see whether your card tricks are as good as the card tricks that they do, because they're sure that they won't be. So I think there is a general interest. And because cards are such common everyday objects, people use playing cards for playing games so it seems like an ordinary object that everybody knows about you don't have to explain a pack of cards do you and so the potential that's why there are so many card tricks because the potential for for different things to be done with cards is huge so i guess you really can't say that card tricks are always going to be boring they might be a, a taste that not everybody has but they're not boring in themselves and and i like to think that 
someone like Paul Gordon, for instance, who has, has made an entire career out of doing nothing but cards, pretty much. Um, he would certainly, I know I've talked to him about this in the past, and he, and he always says the same thing. He said, well, no, it's not the card tricks, the boring, it's the people who do them. And, and I'm sure he's right. That if you don't have the right way of presenting card magic, or any other type of magic for that matter, you are going to be a boring magician, whether you're using coins or silks, or tearing up bits of paper, whatever you're doing. It's not just the cards, it could be anything. You will make it boring if you're not a good entertainer. So there you are, that's your answer. Right, no more discussion. We don't need to talk about that anymore. Well, thank you for listening right through to the end of the October, November 22 podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. And I will look forward to thinking up some more topics to chat to you about in a couple of months time. In the meantime, have a good time. Bye for now.